Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The Startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans, and thus America itself. I'm your host, Chris Stevenson. Join me for our 12-part podcast series, Religion and the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens, grappling with the complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday between now and the end of the year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. When one thinks of what religion has done to America, at least for me, and I think for many of our listeners, Baptists come to mind. They are influential, they are large in number, and their history seems very much linked to American history. If one wants to understand America, one needs to understand America's religious history. And if one needs to understand America's religious history, one must understand Baptist history. We have with us today Barry Hankins, Professor of History and Department Chair at Baylor University, who will walk us through some of the more important parts of Baptist history in the United States, focusing on post-Civil War up to the present day, using the fantastic book, Baptists in America, written by Professor Hankins and his Baylor colleague, Professor Thomas Kidd. Dr. Hankins' research interests include religion and American culture, Protestant fundamentalism and evangelicalism, and church and state in American history. He received his Ph.D. from Kansas State University in 1990 and is the author of several books, including Woodrow Wilson, Ruling Elder, Spiritual President, Jesus and Jinn, Evangelicals, The Roaring Twenties, and Today's Culture Wars, and God's Rascal, J. Frank Norris, and the Beginning of Southern Fundamentalism. Also, as with each episode in our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, we trust that listeners will come away with a better comprehension of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and thus come to value the necessity of this idea of religious freedom as a governing principle to America in fulfilling her purposes in the world. Barry, thank you for being with us today. Good to be here, Chris. First off, uh, why did you and Thomas Kidd decide to write this book? Well, it's, a, it's sort of an interesting story. Um, we use a, a literary agent that uh, helps place our, our books. Uh, Tommy uses uh, Giles a little bit more than I do. But on this book, uh, this literary agent who um, uh, works out of New York, he suggested to Tommy that we ought to write a, a history of Baptists. And, and we thought there are lots of histories of Baptists, you know, lots of books like that. You know, why would anyone, you know, why would there need to be another one? And, and Giles said, there's always a market for them. And so uh, he encouraged us to do it. So, you know, we launched into it and it was, it was really a, it's a fun book to write because we're sort of synthesizing the scholarship of a lot of scholars over the past several decades who've written on Baptist and then you incorporating our own original research that we've done uh, in our own work as well. And then tried to write a book that would be accessible 
to uh, you know an educated lay person, not a scholar. So it's really written. Um, although I think it's it's useful as a textbook in classes or seminary courses and so forth. I think it, it the value of the book is it it, um, it 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 does cross over into that popular reading public um, in a way that uh, people who just want to educate themselves about Baptists or who are Baptists and want to read about their own movement in America can can pick it up and read it. So that's how the how the book came together. Well, I think it is very readable for the layperson, absolutely. So you did a good job in that. And that's interesting to hear that there's always a market for this, and maybe that that seems to resonate with my sort of introduction. I think people, when they think of religion in America, I think Baptists come to mind pretty quickly. So, excellent. Uh, can you give us a succinct definition of Baptist? This is the last sort of introductory question, but I think it's important for us to, to hear that from you. We need to know what what is a Baptist in, you know, short and sweet? Well, that's interesting because there are a lot of different historical arguments about, you know, what, uh, what Baptist identity is historically. And uh, Tommy and I, when we wrote the book, I think going in, we already sort of agreed on this together that a, a lot of Baptists, there are so many different Baptist groups um, and, and, they all have slightly different takes on what it means to be a Baptist. And there are so many Baptist historians who all have a slightly different take. And we, I concluded, I think Tommy and I both concluded going in that often when someone says Baptists believe this, it would be helpful to put the adjective some in front of Baptists. Um, because when it comes down to, if your list gets very long of what it takes to be a Baptist, you're you're going to end up excluding a lot of people who have called themselves Baptists. Okay. Uh, and so basically, you know, it comes down to us that Baptists are Protestant Christians. And about the only two things that really all Baptists in history seem to adhere to is believer's baptism. And that is, of course, the idea that one is baptized after accepting Christ and a new birth, conversion, born-again experience, whatever one wants, uh, whatever one wants to call it. So adult believer's baptism as opposed to infant or pedo-baptism. And the independence of Baptist congregations. Uh, even though Baptists belong to denominations and associations and all sorts of things, each Baptist congregation can make up its own mind what it wants to do, who it hires as a pastor, whether it builds a new church, who it lets be members, who it doesn't let be members, all these sorts of things. So this gives Baptists a lot of, of diversity. Beyond those two things, there are lots of things that most Baptists, you know, I always, another adjective, most or some, there are a lot of other things that most Baptists have, uh, have adhered to that we can talk about as we go through this. Religious liberty would probably be another that's there. But I think if you want to keep it a broad definition that almost all Baptists can fit into, whether they're conservative, fundamentalist, evangelical, liberal, it's probably adult believers' baptism and the congregational independence of, of churches. Okay, that's super helpful. I think that the uh, the short list is good for us on this podcast series as we go through the history here. That's that's very maybe helpful. One more thing I should mention is they call themselves Baptist. <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. Um, yeah. 
As I said, we're going to concentrate on Baptist history after the Civil War, but I need you, or, or could you, uh, Barry, tell us the highlights, the major events, the major contributions uh, of Baptist to American history from the beginning up through the Civil War. And, and Yeah, yeah uh, Baptists have, you know, have made major contributions uh, in the United States, especially also uh, in Britain. Um, and of course, I mean, the, 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 the backdrop you always have to mention is just, you know, evangelism and missions. Baptists have always been at the forefront, not the only ones, but they've always been at the forefront of Protestant Christians in the desire to spread the gospel. So in the United States, I mean, that starts in the colonies. And then as we move through the colonial period uh, and get into the early national period, it, we're talking about Western expansion of the United States. Baptists, along with Presbyterians and Methodists, were the ones who were out there spreading the faith, planting churches, gaining converts. Uh, revivalism is a big part of Baptist evangelism and so forth. So that's sort of the religious contribution, uh, you know, the, the really large religious contribution. But Baptists have also made a major contribution in American history through their emphasis on uh, religious liberty and the separation of church and state. Now, Baptists will debate among themselves exactly what separation of church and state should look like, and we may want to get into the particulars of that later or not. But in the colonial period of American history, separation of church and state meant at least this. The state should not be funding and taxing to fund any particular denomination. And of course, in colonial America, there were places where a denomination or a handful of denominations were tax supported and funded by the state. And Baptists were not. And Baptists were discriminated against, especially in the 1600s and early 1700s, uh, Baptists were discriminated against because they were dissenters. Uh, they were not the only ones, but they were the largest of the dissenting groups, the free churches. They were not supported by the state, and they would not. many of them would not pay taxes to support a church that they were not members of. So since they wouldn't pay their taxes, they were dissenting, and they were arrested and discriminated against and thrown in jail and fined and all sorts of things. And over time, say from the late uh, uh, 17th century, late 1600s, to the founding and the Constitution, the First Amendment to the Constitution, Baptists became, and again, they weren't the only ones, but they were probably the most insistent that the state should not be funding religion. And the parallel, and perhaps even the overarching principle behind that was, there should be religious liberty. Everybody should be free to practice their faith. Now, for a time... In the 1700s, the most visible Baptists trumpeted religious liberty for themselves. They wanted liberty to be Baptist. But over time, many of those, those Baptist leaders came to trumpet and support and promote religious liberty for all people. And so the Baptist influence is right there. Uh, they were lobbying for something like the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. You know, Congress shall make you know, establish no religion, and Congress shall not uh, uh, interfere in the religious liberty of any religion. Uh, to paraphrase the First Amendment, Baptists were a major influence in that coming together. And what's interesting about it is that because Enlightenment 
you could, they weren't exactly thoroughgoing secularists, but people like Thomas Jefferson, Enlightenment figures who were not Orthodox Christians at all, Jefferson and the Enlightenment folks could make common cause with Baptists because both, one from a secular Enlightenment viewpoint, the other from a Baptist Christian viewpoint, both believed in religious liberty for all people. And so they could work together on uh, uh, religious liberty in the First Amendment, and Baptists supported Jefferson and Madison and the others who were the other sort of you know founding fathers, so to speak, who were uh, instrumental in getting the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution uh, into the Constitution. One last question about this pre-Civil War time. Uh, I read in your book that like maybe all churches, uh, the Baptists split over slavery, and there was a North and a South, uh, I don't remember the exact names, but a, a Northern convention or, or association and a Southern. But you you make it make a point in saying that those two elements never reunited after the Civil War. Is that important for us to understand? Uh, it is. Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians all divided North and South. Uh, over the slave issue. And those divisions in those three denominations took place from about 1835 to 1845. And there was no, there was not exactly a sort of nationwide Baptist denomination. What there was, there were Baptist churches and Baptist associations all over the country, North and South. And they cooperated, many of them, not all of them, but many of them cooperated together in, in missions and evangelism. And so there was a national mission board. Uh, it was called the Triennial Commission because it met every three years. And with Baptists, what happened is they tried to keep the slave issue out of, of Baptist um, uh, enterprises by saying, we're just, not, we're just going to ignore it. But that was impossible. So what eventually happened is the Baptists in the North who participated in the Triennial Convention did not want to commission slaveholding Baptists. And in the South, Baptists wanted slaveholders to be allowed to be missionaries, either on the foreign mission field or in home missions here in the United States. And so uh, some southern states actually put together a test case to see if, if they could really sort of keep slavery out of the Triennial Commission and out of evangelism and missions. And so they actually appointed or recommended slaveholding missionaries to be sent out and commissioned by the Triennial Commission, and the Triennial Commission wouldn't do it. And so this prompted Baptists in the South to hold their own meeting in Augusta, Georgia in 1844, where they formed the Southern Baptist Convention. Northern Baptists then later formed the Northern Baptist Convention and went their own way. And so by the time of the Civil War and thereafter, you had a Northern Baptist Convention, which today is called the American Baptist Convention of Churches or something something like that. I'm botching it a little bit. They changed the name of it in, in the 1950s. But from the Civil War on to about the mid-20th century, you had the Northern Baptist Convention and the Southern Baptist Convention, and they've never reunited. The Southern Baptist Convention is still a denomination, and the American Baptist Church is, is, is another denomination. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, one last uh, observation, you don't have to comment on it, but I found it very fascinating that 
because Baptist preachers didn't have to have education or even certification, they took advantage, and when America, after this uh, independence began to, to move westward, Baptists were able to take, were able to go with the westward migration pretty quickly and establish churches and members where the old mainline churches, where they had to have educated pastors and things along those lines, had had a more difficult time. And so it seems like Baptists grew as the nation grew westward. So I just found that was a fascinating observation. Yeah, in the book, Baptists could go into the West, form a congregation because the congregations are all independent. Right call themselves a Baptist church, ordain one of their members, usually a farmer, uh, and he becomes a bivocational pastor, and the church grows, and then same right. thing happens you know, uh, on the next, uh, right. next part of the frontier. Right. Very fascinating. Okay. So now, Barry, after the Civil War, you write of, quote, a near-complete racial separation of black and white Baptists, close quote. Can you elaborate on why and how this happened and the ramifications? Yeah, it's it's uh, an interesting phenomenon, and it's um, you know it's it it is in many ways a sort of sad phenomenon, uh, but it's also very common in that in most denominations are are, are heavily, uh, predominantly white or predominantly black, and you just, it's very difficult. It has been very difficult in American religious history to maintain um, well integrated churches, and this is true for for you know, Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, you know, every, every group. For Baptists in the South, especially during the slave era in many states in the South, it was illegal for, for uh, slave Christians, enslaved Christians to hold their own meetings without white supervision. And this happened um, in large part because of some slave rebellions that took place that had religious connotations and the Nat Turner rebellion in the 1830s was was the biggest example of this. So right. it was almost as if um, white slaveholding Christians, uh, and, and in the case that we're talking about Baptists, they were almost afraid to allow um, African-American slave Baptists to meet together. I mean, essentially because they were afraid they'd read the Old Testament literally and read the story of the Exodus and Moses leading the enslaved um, um, Hebrews out of Egypt, and that was very much a very important part of the Bible for for enslaved Christians, and and so there was supervision. Now that said, African American Baptists proliferated. I mean, that was the largest group of Christians in America easily by by the 1830s and 1840s, and so there were you know enslaved Baptists and enslaved Baptist congregations, or there were there were churches, say Montgomery, Alabama, that had I think Montgomery, Alabama Baptist, the main Baptist church there during the slave period, say 1840s, 1850s. You know, if I'm remembering correctly, they had about 900 members, and 600 of them were African American slaves. So they were in a white church. They were had second class citizenship, and they were under white supervision. But they were very very numerous. So after the Civil War, I mean. Up, even before the Civil War, there are already these large groups of African-American Baptists, usually under white supervision and in white churches. After the Civil War, the question was, okay, what are, what are, what are we going to do here as a church? Well, African-Americans are now free, and they want their own church because they don't want to be supervised by whites. They want to have their own congregation, their own preachers, Black Baptist preachers, which they had. 
And they wanted them to be able to preach freely. They wanted to organize their churches and so forth. So African-Americans wanted independence uh, in their churches. On the other side, white Southern Baptists also wanted them separate, uh, in, in part because of racial animus, in part because of racial prejudice. And so it was like white and black Baptists cooperated with each other to segregate themselves into separate denominations. As unfortunate as that might be, that is, you know, that is what happened. And so you started to see fairly quickly after the Civil War, the development of black Baptist associations uh, and then black Baptist denominations and by 1895, there is a National Baptist Convention, which today, you know, from that time until today is the largest African-American organization of any kind in America. Now, many, many Black Baptists do not belong to the National Baptist Convention, but it is the largest Baptist, Black Baptist group, African-American Baptist group in, in the country. And so by 1900, you know, you have pretty much the thoroughgoing, almost complete segregation of white Baptists from black Baptists and vice okay. versa. Okay, that's that's super helpful. Thank you for that. Now, relatedly, can you explain uh, the lost cause movement and how and why the Baptists, as you write, quote, led the way, close quote? Yeah. The lost cause is is an idea that developed after the Civil War, uh, and uh, really, it was powerful and a growing sort of idea uh, up until the 1920s and probably remnants of it after, after that. And the lost cause idea is this, this idea that former Confederate leaders in the South had that although they lost the war, they didn't their cause continued. And the cause that they referred to was Christian civilization. Confederate leaders, Baptists among them, but many Methodists as well, uh, Confederate leaders believed that the South, the Confederacy, was the most Christian form of civilization on the planet much more Christian than the North. And, it's, and in many ways, they were correct. I mean, just in terms of the numbers of people who would have professed faith in Christ, that was probably true, that there were more professing Christians in the South than anywhere else in the country, maybe anywhere else in the world. But they also believed that slavery was a Christian institution. And they had a biblical defense of slavery and a theological defense of slavery based on uh, the Bible. And so even when they, they lost slavery, the idea of a sort of organically, hierarchically organized society under a Christian, you know, the authority of, of Christ, that idea continued well into the 1920s. So the idea, again, is that we lost the war, Confederate leaders would say, but our cause continues. We are a Christian civilization. And again, you know, one of the unfortunate aspects of this was the racial segregation of this and, and the continuing belief uh, in a racial hierarchy, uh, which essentially is white supremacy. And so this is part of the lost cause mentality that Baptists, uh, the Baptists took up, which is why Southern Baptists were a, you know, a segregated denomination. Southern Baptist churches did not allow, for the most part, did not allow African-American members <laughs> most of them until the 1970s, 
so, so this is part of that lost cause racial ideology that was very much a part uh, of Baptist history. Do you think the lost cause, so where is the lost cause ideology now? I mean, you say up and through, up through the twenties, it was pretty, uh, I don't know if regnant's the right word, but it was, it was, uh, there and powerful. What happened in the 1920s is that the South sort of more than had been the case since the civil war began to reintegrate itself into the nation. And so start by the 1920s, you know, you, you had some of the leading, in fact, starting in the 1920s, again, as was the case in the 19, in the 1830s and 1840s, some of the leading co- uh, congressmen and senators in the nation were now from the South and they were taking leadership positions again in Congress, okay. in, in the national Congress, the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives. So the, so the South was sort of reintegrating back into the nation in that way. But I really think uh, this, this, the lost cause mentality continued. Again, this idea that the South is more Christian, I think it continues to this day. I think there is this sense in the South that we are a more Christian. Uh, I say we, I mean, I grew up a Yankee in, in Michigan. I've lived m- most of my adult life in Texas. But so I'm sort of you know paraphrasing what a, a Southern mentality often is, and that is that the South is a more Christian part of the nation, and yeah. that the South has a still has a a, a a unique role to play in American history in preserving traditional values, uh, whether it be family values or um, a traditional marriage or any number of these things. You still see this in in Southern politics. This is very, uh, very large. It's not just in the South. I mean, you can find other places where this is not a lost cause mentality, but there's still this this sort of evangelical emphasis in politics in the Midwest and other places on traditional values. But in the South, it's just um, it is a sort of Southern civil religion. Uh, okay. that, that still has a good bit of that lost cause mentality, even though, you know, after the civil rights movement, you can no longer tout, you know, racial segregation and discrimination that, you know, that's, that's gone. I mean, it's still there <laughs> in a, in a popular form, right. But respectable politicians and religious figures uh, don't hold that anymore. And so that part of the lost cause mentality is, is perhaps gone, although you can still, you know, you can still find it on the popular level, you know, right. with, with flags and garages and, and on trucks and that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, but it's still there in a, in a religion culture sense of defending the traditional values of Christian, of the Christian faith, which are the traditional values of America. So this argument goes. Okay. Fascinating. Thank you. Uh, that's really, really interesting. Now I want to move into the first part of the 20th century, which you just sort of mentioned in some of your explanations there. And in doing so, we meet a very prominent Baptist statesman uh, whose name is George W. Truett. Would you give us the context, Barry, and the substance of his May 1920 sermon in Washington, D.C., which you call, quote, the most famous sermon in Southern Baptist history, close quote? Yeah, this is George Truett, who was the pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, Um, I can't remember the exact year he became pastor. It may have even been before the turn of the century, but he pastored until his death in 1944. And uh, he became uh, a a sort of well-known Baptist statesman. And so in 1920, he gives a sermon 
Uh, and it's, it's during the Southern Baptist Convention meeting of the summer of 1920, and it's in Washington, D.C., and he gives this sermon. Uh, I guess it's on the Capitol steps, and you can find photographs of this. Uh, you can Google them and so forth. And basically, it's, it's the idea, it, it, it's based on this Baptist idea of religious liberty, where we started today. And it's, it's sort of a triumphal, I, I have to uh, smile, and I always, you know, uh, laugh a little bit, because there is this, this sense of sort of Baptist triumphalism, especially among Southern Baptists, because Southern Baptists dominated the South so much, uh, there is this idea, and there's a lot of truth to it, so I mean, it's, not, it's not completely fictional, but it's, it's the idea that, that as Baptists go, so goes America. And since Baptists have trumpeted religious liberty, what George Truett essentially was saying in that famous sermon was that, you know, the nation has now accepted what Baptists have always preached, and that is religious liberty. And it's the idea that what you see in the first 16 words of the First Amendment, the, the Establishment Clause, the, the Free Exercise Clause of Religion, what you see there is nothing other than the United States sort of catching up to where Baptists have always been. And that this is an example of how the country is becoming more, more Baptist in a sense. What he, he sort of says, but doesn't really intend to say in that sermon, if you look at it closely in, in the way that some scholars have studied it, he's also acknowledging that Baptists are becoming more American. In fact, he's blurring the lines between what it means to be a Baptist and what it means to be American. Now, some people don't like this interpretation of the sermon uh, because it, it lends itself to the idea of a, a blurring of what's supposed to be distinctively Christian and what is sort of civil religion and, um, pa and American patriotism and nationalism, those sorts of things. But I think he does blur the lines between what it means to be an American and what it means to be a Baptist. And he thinks that's a good thing, but there's a downside to that when, when Christian groups begin to equate their faith too closely with their American patriotism. Sometimes it borders on, and there's a whole body of scholarly literature on this, it can actually border on idolatry where one, and I'm not saying true it went this far, but if you take this idea that being a Christian and being an American are very much, are very closely related, almost the same thing. One ends up asking the question, okay, what is being worshiped here? Is it the nation itself, you know, or is it the transcendent God who stands over the nation? So true its sermon, on the one hand, it is a, um, a, a wonderful articulation of religious liberty. On the other hand, it is also a classic example of conflating Baptist identity with American identity uh, as well. So, you you quote somebody uh, saying um, this, which which you're you're telling us uh, you just told us, but this is a, a really good uh, statement. Quote: The cherished wall of separation had come to function as a mirror. When Baptists looked at American democracy, they saw themselves. Close quote. So that would be yeah. Baptist. Southern Baptist triumphalism. Yes, exactly. In a, in a word. And that quote comes from uh, Christopher Knight, who actually was uh, one of my PhD students, who then um, uh, revised and expanded his dissertation into the book that you're that I'm quoting there. And uh, I think he he makes a very strong case throughout his book that Truett and another Southern Baptist, E.Y. Mullins, and then the Northern Baptist social gospel leader. 
uh, Walter Rauschenbusch in a very different way, all came to a, a place where they conflated American ideals with Christian ideals. And, uh, and so as uh, Christopher Knipe says, that this wall of separation that Baptists have trumpeted you know, ended up looking more like a mirror uh, than a wall. They looked at America and they saw themselves. And I, I think that's, you know, I use that quote because I thought it was the best way of putting it that, it, that I've found. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to, to think about that. We are talking with Barry Hankins, professor of history and department chair at Baylor University, about the book he co-authored with Professor Thomas Kidd, Baptists in America. Now, Barry, let's go to your chapter about Baptist involvement in the civil rights movement. Would you share the story of Martin Luther King sitting at his kitchen table, pondering his possible role, and I think this was in the 1950s, in the burgeoning resistance movement and, quote, experiencing the presence of the divine, close quote. Yes, this is, uh, you know, in, in uh, throughout the book, um, we, Tommy and I, you know, want to cover, you know, in, in a book of, of this length, we can't, you can't cover everything, but you want to cover white Baptists, African-American Baptists, Hispanic Baptists, Native American Baptists, and so forth. The, and so much of, especially the second half of the book, uh, deals with African-American Baptists. And um, so when we get to the civil rights movement, this is where Black Baptists make a major contribution to American history. Um, not the first contribution by any means, but perhaps the most significant contribution. And it's because the civil rights movement was led by a Black Baptist preacher, Martin Luther King Jr. So the event that you're referring to there is in Montgomery, Alabama, in 1954, when Rosa Parks famously won't give up her seat on the city bus because African-Americans were required to sit in the back and give up the seat in the front half of the bus if a white wanted that seat. And she refused to give up her seat on the bus. And so African-Americans in Montgomery decided to take a stand against segregation in that city. Now, this did not come out of the blue. African-Americans have been organizing these sorts of things for a number of years. And in fact, Rosa Parks had just gone to a NAAC training on resistance to segregation. And I said 1954, this actually came in 1955 because it comes on the heels of the brutal murder of Emmett Till in, uh, in Mississippi. And in the wake of that brutal murder of that 15-year-old Emmett Till from Chicago, who had come down to Mississippi to visit his, uh, his uh, relatives and was brutally murdered for allegedly flirting with a white woman. Uh, and that's, there's even question about whether that even happened, but uh, he, he spoke with the white woman and that was enough to get him in trouble and he was brutally murdered. And in the wake of that, again, for 10 years, African-Americans had been organizing small demonstrations against segregation. But in the wake of the Emmett Till murder, uh, this sort of ratcheted up the stakes. And so Rosa Parks had gone to a training and she had come back. And so she was a, she was a civil rights activist and refused to give up her seat on the bus. And so African-Americans decide they're going to take a stand against this in the city of Montgomery. 
So they decide on, an, on a Montgomery bus boycott. They're going to boycott the city transit system. Now, one might ask, well, you know, how is that going to help? It's going to help because it's going to shut down the city transit system because so many African-Americans rode buses uh, to, to work that if they weren't going to, to use the bus system, it was going to put the city of Montgomery in, in a really hard place, probably shut down the transit system. And so they went, the African-Americans, Rosa Parks and the others who um, wanted to organize this, they went to Martin Luther King Jr. He had just become the pastor of, uh, of the Baptist church there in, uh, in Montgomery. And so as a Baptist pastor, he is looked to as a, a community leader. And this is because Black Baptist churches were like full service institutions. And this, this started in the 1880s and 90s and proliferated throughout the 20th century. And what I mean by that is that's where political organizations took place. That's where community meetings took place. Of course, dinners took place there. Recreation took place there. The, the Black Baptist Church in many communities was the center of the community. So quite naturally, Rosa Parks and other um, African-American activists in Montgomery, they go to uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And they say, we need your support here. You are the pastor of the largest Baptist church here in Montgomery. And so he has to decide. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. at this time, he, he had not been an activist. And in fact, he had grown up highly educated, trained, PhD from Boston University. Martin Luther King Jr. was on the track to become the pastor of one of the leading largest Baptist churches in America in Chicago or New York. I mean, that's the career track he was on. And so he sits in his, uh, uh, as you said, he sits in his kitchen that night after meeting with these activists and he has to ask himself, this is going to be a career, a different career. And he knows this is going to, you know, this is going to railroad the, the career track he's on at the point, at that point, which is a sort of, you know, upper middle class, African-American career track of, of becoming an elite. And it's going to put him in, in danger. Uh, and so he sits there and he's thinking about it and he's praying about it as the story goes. And as he tells the story later, and he makes a decision that this is where God is calling him. And so he agrees to become the leading spokesperson for the Montgomery bus boycott. And this is, this is where uh, Martin Luther King Jr. starts his career as civil rights uh, leader. Of course, within uh, weeks uh, after he begins to take a public stand and make public speeches and rally African-Americans to the cause, I mean, his house is bombed, his family is in danger, uh, and, yeah. and and this launches his career as uh, as the leader of the American Civil Rights Movement. Let me just read uh, from your, your book this, uh, what uh, I think he, he said about this. It's very moving. I, I just want to read it before we move on. As he was sitting on, at his kitchen table, uh, he writes, um, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. He had heard the still small voice of God whisper in his spirit saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. My uncertainty disappeared, King recalled. I was ready to face anything. Three nights later, his home was bombed. So very, uh, very profound and moving story of that black Baptist preacher. Um, 
I want to move on to the late 20th century. Of course, we could talk for a long time about Baptist involvement in the civil rights movement, uh, but I think we'll have to be satisfied with that story about Martin Luther King, and you give us some information and details, I think, uh, that many of us have, have not heard yet. And I'll, before I leave, let me just read this last thing that you write, and we'll just let it sit with us. We won't discuss it. You write this, quote, Martin Luther King, though a Baptist preacher, transcended his denomination in that he combined his ecumenical influences with the folk religion and revival techniques of the black Baptist preacher. So we'll just let that sort of hang in the air and move on. Uh, Barry, now, uh, 1979, and the election of Adrian Rogers, a fundamentalist pastor, as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. You write that this election, quote, would become one of the most significant religious events of the 20th century, close quote. That is a very, very strong statement. Can you give us this story and its ramifications? Sure. Uh, the reason I, I put it that way um, is because the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in America. Uh, of course, the largest religious group in America is the Catholic Church in the United States, but Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination. Uh, they peaked at about uh, 16 million members some years ago. They've had uh, some decline in the past five to 10 years. And so as the largest Protestant denomination, uh, for most of its history, it had held itself together uh, by not being too overtly theological. In other words, what it meant to be a Southern Baptist was to be in a congregation that participated and supported financially uh, the missions and evangelism efforts of the denomination. So, you know, by the 60s and 70s, when it becomes the largest denomination in America, it's got six seminaries, it's got a home missions agency, it's got a foreign missions agency. There are more Southern Baptist missionaries on the foreign mission field than any other group uh, in, in America, probably in the world. Um, and, but th they had avoided a, a major schism or split between the conservative wing and the more moderate wing. And they had done that by emphasizing evangelism and missions and trying not to fight about theology. Now there had been skirmishes theologically along the way, you know, a seminary professor that was considered too liberal. In fact, there was one where a whole handful of seminary professors resigned and, and had to leave one of, the, one of the Baptist seminaries, but there had never been anything that split the convention. So starting in 1979, the conservative group within the Southern Baptist Convention decided that they wanted their denomination to take a stand on conservative theological issues. They trumpeted the inerrancy of scripture, and that was sort of the, the flagship issue that they were going to, uh, going to use. And what they wanted to do was to, to force Southern Baptist leaders to either accept the inerrancy of scripture and some other conservative doctrine that went with it, or lose their ability to, to be in leadership positions. And two individuals, uh, a Texas judge named Paul Pressler and a Texas theologian and pastor named Paige Patterson, so Pressler and Patterson, they figured out that if the conservatives could elect a Southern Baptist president 
for a decade, Southern Baptist presidents usually served two one-year terms. So they were just president for two years. And the only power they really had, it was almost a, a, a uh, honorary position, except they appointed the Committee on Committees, which in turn appointed the boards of all the agencies and seminaries in the Southern Baptist Convention. So Pressler and Patterson figured out if they could get conservative presidents for 10 years in a row, they had figured out sort of mathematically that all of the boards and agencies, seminary boards, agency boards, could be turned over to the conservative, sometimes called fundamentalist faction, although I'm pretty careful with that term myself. So, could, so all of the agencies, and that happened. They were successful in doing that. Adrian Rogers won the election in 1979, and uh, he actually stepped down after one year and then another uh, uh, conservative, then another and another. By the mid-1980s, these the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting was a pitched battle between conservative faction and the moderate faction. Both had their own candidate, both promoted their own candidate, both encouraged their people to come to the convention because that's where the voting took place on the presidency. And so between 1979 and 1985, Southern Baptist Convention annual meetings went from maybe between five and 10,000 people. By 1985, there's 45,000 people at the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Dallas in this pitched battle, and the moderates never won the presidency again. So by the mid-1990s, all, all of the seminaries, for example, the six Southern Baptist seminaries, have basically forced out the moderate theologians uh, and professors and have hired new conservatives who will tout inerrancy and a handful of other uh, issues, one of which was ordination of women. Being opposed to the ordination of women in the Southern Baptist Convention also became uh, a litmus test of this. So again, this is a major schism in the largest Protestant denomination in America. This is why I call it one of the major religious events of the 20th century. Okay. And uh, I guess the, the, that brings us up us up to today in the Southern Baptist Convention, right? They still, uh, the the conservatives still hold sway, and where are the moderates? Are they there the still battling? It, the, the the moderates quit fighting. You know, you can pick a pick a year in the 1990s when they just stopped going to Southern Baptist uh, Convention meetings altogether. A lot, yeah. many churches, uh, some churches continued to uh, send funds to the Southern Baptist Convention and also send funds to a group of new Baptist associations, for example, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. By comparison to Southern Baptist Convention, it's a very small, but it's a national organization of Baptist associations and Baptist congregations who do not want to be affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention anymore. So today you have the, and the odd thing is to be affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention all a congregation has to do is send money to the cooperative program, which supports the enterprises of the SBC. Uh, and so a lot of churches, that's that's the extent of their participation. Their, their, their concerns are local. They want to be a local congregation, but they still send funds to the Southern Baptist Convention. Other churches are very adamantly Southern Baptist and proud to be associated with the SBC. Then you have all of these churches that not much changed in their congregation. They continued to practice their faith as they always had, but at some point they just stopped sending funds to the SBC 
and started sending funds to the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. All in the South, all these churches are also aligned with their state conventions. Some state conventions are closely aligned with the SBC, others are not. In Texas, the main Baptist state convention is the Baptist General Convention of Texas. It's not aligned with the Southern Baptist Convention anymore. It used to be. So taking its place, a new Texas Baptist Convention started calling the uh, Conservative Southern Baptists of Texas, uh, and they do align with the SBC. So it's all, you know, Baptists, you know, well, we this this convoluted sort of organizational history because of the independence that, right. that congregations have. I, I read in your book uh, where you say, and I guess this is a well-known phrase, but uh, new to me, uh, there is no Baptist church, there are just Baptist churches. Exactly. And, so that, and that's, that's what's different about Baptist right. as opposed to Methodist or Presbyterian. Right, right. Okay. So in closing here, I have two last questions. The first would be, uh, Barry, is there any story that you want to share, a uh, short story you want to share that you weren't able to from Baptist history that you think uh, our listeners should hear? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, an aspect of, of Baptist history that, that I don't want to leave untouched is, is the interesting phenomenon of Baptist women. And I want to go back to the late 19th century because Baptist women, white Baptist women and black Baptist women, they had this interesting relationship. And these were, uh, some of these Baptist women were, were in the North. Uh, the black Baptist women were mostly uh, Southerners. Uh, at that time, this was before the great migration of African-Americans to the North. Uh, so most African-Americans lived in the South. And so say a black Baptist woman like Virginia Broughton and a white Baptist, Northern Baptist woman named uh, uh, Hannah Moore, um, or Joanna Moore, I'm sorry, Joanna Moore, uh, they had this interesting relationship, personal relationship, where Joanna Moore wanted to do what she could to help African-American Baptists in the South. And this was true of a lot of Northern Baptist churches and associations. They, they would come down and help Black Baptist congregations get going. And so Joanna Moore and Virginia Broughton had this relationship where they sort of nurtured each other in the faith. And the result of that is that Virginia Broughton, who lived in Tennessee, was a school teacher in Memphis, Tennessee, she would, would, on the weekends, she would ride out in the countryside, sometimes all the way into Missouri, and she would hold meetings of Black Baptist women, and she would organize them into what she called Bible bands. Uh, and it was almost like, a, you know, Methodist John Wesley, you know, and the Methodist circuit riding preachers who would organize congregations. And, and then she would meet with them and they would meet together when she could not be there anymore. And they would basically have Bible studies. These are women's Bible studies that are taking place. And Joanna Moore's influence helped Virginia Broughton launch that. And then they had this interesting relationship where they were symbolic of an interesting relationship of white black Baptist women and black Baptist women in that they cooperated with each other much more than the men did uh, with each other uh, on Christian enterprises and Baptist enterprises. And we think in a sense, it was because they had something in common and what they had in common was that in their own denominations, they were both, uh, viewed as sort of second-class citizens because there were women. And they were in denominations that were male-dominated. They were in denominations that would not ordain women preachers. And yet women were more numerous than men. 
women ran many of the enterprises of local Baptist congregations, whether they were black congregations or, or white. And this is this is really true in American religion, largely. The churches are sort of run by women under the supervision of a male pastor. And so Virginia Broughton and Joanna Moore, they had this in common that in their own denominations, they were always battling against the men who wanted to control what they did. And, and oftentimes they just exercised an independence and said, we know what God's calling us to do. We're going to do it anyway. And the men, sometimes the male preachers, the ordained leaders had to say, oh, okay, you know, that's the way it's going to be. So they had that in common. At the same time, they had the difference, the racial difference where they were negotiating, negotiating a highly segregated society. I'm not talking just about the North, I'm talking about the United States, a highly segregated society based on white supremacy. And, you know, and Joanna Moore is trying to transcend that when she meets with Virginia Broughton, but they both understand that African-Americans are not equal and they're in, in, this, in this civilization. Uh, and so they have the racial difference, but they have the gender unity uh, and, uh, you know, at one point, Virginia Broughton called Joanna Moore, I think it may have been when Joanna Moore died, uh, or, or shortly thereafter, that she has been like the Apostle Paul to African American women. Uh, she has been sent by God uh, to help us launch our own, uh, our own enterprises. And, and the feeling was mutual, and the influence was mutual going, going both directions. So it's a fascinating phenomenon that we see that, that brings race and gender together with religion, in in some uh some significant ways that's a fascinating story and i think really helpful to talk about uh women someone told me once that the history of religion in america is the history of women in america so yeah that's a, that's a quote from women's historian ann broad uh, uh, in a article that she wrote several decades ago and and uh you know it's got a lot of punch to it it really it really does yeah. uh, the, the importance of women in american religion yeah. uh it's it's yeah it's a whole body of scholarly literature uh, yeah. that continues to grow yeah i think we need to do a podcast episode on on that probably or an, a whole series so Barry, uh, last question before we end are there any lessons or takeaways from the book either in terms of important historical transformations you were charting or in terms of helping us better understand the present moment that you'd want to share yeah, I, I think that uh, there's always, when you study American religious history, there's always this interesting phenomenon where, on the one hand, you can see so clearly how important religion has been in American history. It's almost it's almost hard to to overemphasize that that point or to, or to emphasize it too much. Uh, religion has been a driving force, a shaping factor throughout American history, and continues even in this day and age when. The narrative is the decline uh, of religion in America. That narrative, I, I suspect, is, is, is overblown uh, um, even, even now. But there's also the flip side of this. It's not just the religious influence on America, but it's the powerful way that American culture has shaped religion. Uh, not always for the for the good uh, either. So elements of American culture, you know, whether it be nationalism or militarism or racial division, uh, the, oftentimes the religious groups in making their way and retaining their influence in the culture have had to compromise 
too much with uh, with American secular culture, uh, and they've always had they always need to grapple with the extent to which the culture is shaping the religion as opposed to the other way around. So that's a major takeaway, I think, uh, from from the book Baptist in America. Thank you, Barry, for that uh, last insight. We have been talking with Barry Hankins, professor of history and department chair at Baylor University, about the book he co-authored with Professor Thomas Kidd. Baptists in America. I hope that all of us have learned a little bit more about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and as a result, appreciate a little bit more the value of this idea of religious freedom as a governing principle to America in fulfilling her purposes in the world. Barry, thank you very much for being with us, and it's been very enlightening. It's been good to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday starting October 19, 2020, through the end of the year, on Podbean, under Story of American Religion, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify.